Hi, this is Gage from Why God Why. We're in the midst of a season titled The Credibility of Christianity, and we are diving into all types of topics like faith and science, politics, diversity, faith and beauty or superficiality, and more. And as we go through this season, uh, we want to hear from you. We're going to do an episode at the very end of the season where we discuss the whole season and respond to listener questions. So as you listen along and you think, hey, I wish they talked about that question further, or they didn't really hit on this topic related to the episode. We'd love to hear from you and get a chance to discuss it together. So as you're listening along, if that occurs to you, send your question you'd like us to discuss to peter at browncroft.org. If you're extra savvy, uh, send us a recording of your voice actually asking the question, and we can include that in the episode. We'll only share your name if you give us permission but we'd love to hear from you. With that, enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Why God Why podcast. My name is Peter Englert. Amanda, this is like, I don't know when these podcasts come out, but this is the second in a row I'm with you. I know. It's actually quite a wonderful day. I know. I know. Well... We, we try to have a little fun on the front end because today's question is, why are Christians so hypocritical? Mm-hmm. Um, we, we have uh, Dr. Nijay Gupta, and he's from Northern Seminary. He's also on the New Living Translation um, Committee to redo that translation. He's an author. He's been on several podcasts. But the reason we asked him is our current series is on the credibility of Christianity and his new book, Strange Religion, um, is really kind of a good background to this question. So we'll get into more of that. But Nijay, you're joining the Three Timers Club on this podcast. <laughs> How does that feel? How does that rank up there in your life? Uh, it's it's uh, it's exciting. Peter and I go way, way, way back, um, you know, to the old, old days many generations ago. And so I'm a legacy guest. So I think um, I should get like a gold ring or something. I think like when I hit five, I think I get I should get like a I think of like Sign I Live, the five timers. I get a robe, mm-hmm. some kind of robe, like a bathrobe. It'll, it'll be in the mail. Yeah, it'll be in the mail. You, you're All just right. going to get you're just going to get a large question mark. I don't <laughs> <laughs> this, this is why we don't do branding. Well, before we jump into this question, um, why don't you just share, just give us a little update since our last interview was about a year and a half ago. Um, you know, tell us what you've been up to and just share a little bit more about yourself. Yeah, I teach at Northern Seminary. So I teach um, pastors and Christian leaders I've uh, been at Northern Seminary for a few years. I actually live in Portland, Oregon. You know, some of your listeners may already remember that. So I don't I don't live where I work, which is weird for some people, but I kind of like it. Uh, I get in, to enjoy being uh, in a town I love here in Portland, Oregon. Um, last year uh, was a pretty exciting and memorable year for me because I wrote a book called Tell Her Story, um, How Women Led, Taught, and Ministered in the Early Church. And, you know... You, you might remember, I've, I've written a few books before, but usually they're academic books that, you know, collect dust on the shelf. But that one really struck a nerve. And so I spent a lot of time last year talking with various churches and groups. And it's really gratifying when you feel like you've done something that um, is generating some really productive conversations. So that kept me busy. And, um, and now uh, I have a new book that's coming out in February on how weird... Christianity can be and should be and is. I like it. Well, let's kind of jump in because I just kind of want to frame the episode of why we're kind of having you and kind of talking about this book. I think most people today would say Christians are weird because they're hypocritical and they don't follow their beliefs. And I think the premise of strange religion is Christians are weird because they actually follow what they believe. Is that kind of a good summary or, I mean, push back on that? Yeah. Yeah. So part of the hook for my book is, you know, I live in the weird capital of the world, Portland, Oregon. And I actually mentioned in the book that um, our city motto is keep Portland weird. And so if you go downtown, there's this big sign 
uh, Keep Portland Weird, which people go and they take pictures of the tourists come and take pictures. And uh, there's uh, if you read my book, it's all in the introduction. There's a guy who goes down there and uh, he rides a unicycle in circles and he wears a Darth Vader mask and he plays bagpipes that blast fire. He's called the Unipiper. Anyway, uh, that's just a taste. That's just a taste of how weird we are. But there's there's a serious point to the weirdness of Portland, and it's that um, Portland doesn't like to blend into popular culture. They like uniqueness. They like local. You're not going to find Walmarts and McDonald's in the city center, stuff like that. And so Portland gets a kick out of being different, deviating from the norm. Um, and what's interesting about my experience here in Portland, and it's not all bad, you know, don't listen to the news. <laughs> my mom from in Ohio is always calling me like, what the heck's going on in Portland? Because there's <laughs> looting and rioting and, you know, all kinds of craziness going on. And, and so she's like, lock your door. I'm like, I'm okay, mom. <laughs> but, but when I talk to people here, this is a largely unchurched, uh, perhaps even anti-church kind of uh, culture. And the reputation that Christianity has here is that they're basically an amplification of the worst vices of American society. Mm. Um, a lot of the people I know here, they think that church amplifies, broadcasts racism, sexism, Christian nationalism, anti-Semitism, all the isms, right? Consumerism, radical individualism. And they associate Christianity with Donald Trump, and they associate Christianity with Jerry Falwell. Um, and uh, so they're not exposed, perhaps, to the streams <laughs> of Christianity. But um, the, 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 the by, and, by and large, the, the, the sentiment that Portlanders have towards Christians is um, they're so normal, it disgusts them. And the normality is they basically just – it's just like what you see on social media with all the hostility and um, cynicism and bitterness and malice. And they just throw Jesus as the cherry on top. And this really – one of the reasons I wrote this book at this time in my life is you know, during the pandemic, Portland locked down really hard. Uh, for the sake of people's safety, which is great. But that means churches had to pivot to online, and as many they did in many places. Um, and that raised the question, what is church? And so, you know, you guys remember, probably with fear and trembling, sitting in front of your TV or your computer screen, watching church, and asking yourself, is this church? Is this really it? And it was great the first month or two or six, three months maybe, but after a while, it just felt like another thing to do to check a box. I mm -hmm. felt that way, and I care a lot about church. And I remember this one moment of yelling at my kids, get down here and watch church. And I thought, oh, my gosh, what have I done? I just told my children to watch church. Um, and, and then when churches opened up again, there's that sense, I don't really need this in my life mm -hmm. for a lot of people, a lot of people that I've interacted with. And that really raised the question, is church something different than just going to another thing? Mm. Um, is, is it is is it weird? You know, is it weird enough to capture our imagination and say, I really need this? So there's different definitions of strange or weird. One is deviating from the norm. So mm -hmm. then the question is, is the norm good or bad? And the, mm. uh, American culture is is has great things, has terrible things. Right. We have Cinnabon for Pete's sake. Come on. You know, there's some great things about American culture, right? But, you know, we're in a time right now where um, we're facing a lot of the dark side of American culture. I was sitting with my my daughter who's 12 and my, my oldest child is going to college next year. And so we were saying to our 12-year-old, you know, what do you want to study when you're in college? And she gave a very honest but very disheartening answer. She said, does it even matter? Will, will, will the world still be around in four years, five years? 
And so I was really inspired to say, okay, if the gospel is the great hope of the world, why is the church having such a hard time being the light, the city on a hill? Mm. I think that we're not weird in the ways that the very first Christians, our ancestors, were weird, not to be weird, but because they realize the world is completely off track. We need to get back to what it was always meant to be. And that means we have to be willing to deviate from the norm. Um, there, there's an ancient critic of Christianity named Celsus. And he had this statement. It's in my book. Um, Christians, and I'm going to paraphrase, uh, Christians are, are so weird that anytime people started to do what they did, they would do something else. <laughs> Now, that's not true, but I think what Kelsus is saying is they were like backwards. It's like whatever society did, they did the exact opposite. Hmm. And I don't think Christians were actually trying to be weird. I don't think they – in fact, read the book of Acts. They're trying to say we're good people. We're good citizens. We're going to walk the old ladies across the road, right? We're not going to pick it against you know, politicians and things. But they just marched to the beat of a different drummer, just completely different. And, um, I think what's happening, I'm going to, I'm going to give you, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to give you the heart of the book. And now when I'm not going to sell any copies, thanks, Peter, I'm gonna <laughs> give you the heart of the book. And then we can talk about details. Here, here's what I think is going on. Um, it, and this happened in the early church and it's happening today. Um, sometimes what happens in a particular culture or community is they hear the gospel and they retain everything they already had, and they just stick Jesus over it like a blanket mm. or like wrapping paper, right? They basically Christianize non-Christian culture. Mm-hmm. And because, you know, maybe you don't think to do anything different and you just sort of, you know, stick the bow of Jesus on it. What the early Christians did, I think about Philippians chapter three, where Paul talks about losing all things. Right. He says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. No, no, no. I've lost all things. He doesn't actually lose his ethnic identity. He doesn't actually lose his heritage or his language. But he has to give everything away in order to put Jesus at the living center and then reorient all things around Jesus. You get all those things back. Right. You get your heritage, your ethnicity. Right. But. It's got to all be reconfigured because mm. of Jesus. And that's going to be weird, right? It's going to come out differently. And it's going to make you a different person. It's going to make the church different. But when all you're doing is just sticking wrapping paper on it, then that's going to erode so fast that either you're going to blend into the norm or you're going to amplify the worst of society, which I think is what's happening. Mm. So, first of all, uh, I pre-ordered the book, and I have an advanced good, copy. Good so, just everybody buy this book. So, we're going to take that off the table. But what I think is helpful is paint a picture for us, because I think this gets to this question of Christians aren't credible, and Christianity is not credible because of hypocrisy. Let's talk about the early church. Paint a picture what did they get right in their radical living of the gospel? And then also what did they get wrong? Because there are letters in the Bible that are correcting. And I think that that helped our modern listener really process this question and idea of hypocrisy, maybe so that we can apply it for today. Yeah. Well, a big part of my book is I want to give an immersive experience of what it would have been like to live in the first century, especially because today the dominant religion in the United States is Christian or atheist, I guess. Uh, and, and, and then you have, you know, Im- immigrants and other religions, but, but, but we come with Christendom post Christendom, but the early Christians didn't. So let me just explain Roman religion was largely about having these Roman gods like Jupiter as celestial overlords of your state. And the whole point of religion is what I call the Pax de Orum, which is Latin for to keep peace with the gods. 
So you just think about being in a colonialized situation where you just want to keep the masters happy and you want to just stay out of their way. And if you can curry some favor, great. But religion wasn't nirvana. It wasn't afterlife. It wasn't Jesus in my heart. It wasn't peace with God. It was like, I don't want laser beams to strike me dead because I've offended the Olympians. Like that was the, you know, I talk about all of this in my book. And Christianity comes along. So if the, if the dominant paradigm religion was basically government, the gods are governors, they're, they're powerful and maybe trigger happy <laughs> governors, right? What Christianity does with Jesus, being with Jesus, is to shift the model and paradigm away from the hierarchical political sphere to the home. And saying, don't imagine God as, as a trigger-happy magistrate. Imagine God as a loving parent. This would have been completely paradigm-shifting. Jews did have this as well, but they were a very private group of people. They weren't out there evangelizing, right? A little bit, but not really. And Christians are out there, and they're saying, okay, religion isn't keeping peace with the gods. Jesus Christ did that. Religion is having a personal relationship with God, like a child to a parent. We're used to that language, right? Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? This would have been mind blowing mm -hmm. at that time. So I give the example in my book, you know, imagine you went to your, you know, bank loan officer, right? You, you want to run a small business. You need a loan. You say, Hey, do I have a personal relationship? Really get to know each other, talk heart to heart? No, they don't <laughs> want that, right? Or let's say you're going on trial, a criminal trial, right? You're not going to have a personal relationship with the judge. It's not going to happen, right? This is not going to happen. Let's say you're in prison. You're not going to have a personal relationship with the guard or the warden. Mm -hmm. So that's the paradigm that Rome's working with. And these Christians are saying, uh, you could have this heart-to-heart -heart Abba Father relationship with God through the Spirit. This was crazy. Like they had a word for this. It was called superstition, and superstition means dangerous interactions with the gods. Mm. And this is the kind of stuff that you could be executed for. Uh, we have lots of evidence for this. So um, Christians were just doing things completely differently because Jesus and the Spirit had come and said, "We can." tear down these walls that separate the divine world from the human world and have this unity that we could have never had before because of Jesus. And um, this led to a whole different way of life, right? Let me just give you a taste. You asked me the question about how that changed, how Christians lived. And then we'll talk about the naughty, the naughty things that Christians did. But um, <laughs> in terms of what, what that meant for Christians, I'll just give you one example I have a chapter in here uh, called To Treat All as Equal. And um, thinking, about, thinking about what's going on in society today, right? Thinking about what's going on in Gaza, what's going on in Ukraine, what's going on with racism in America. Um, ultimately, the, what social media has done, especially with the isolation we've experienced over the last few years, has led to the dehumanizing, right, of our enemies. Took us how many hundreds of years to humanize our enemies, and we undid that in about five years, <laughs> seven years. Um, and so uh, I was just watching this wonderful uh, historical fiction show called A Small Light, which is about the family that hid the Anne Frank family. And... I tell you what, guys, I'm watching this show. Wonderful show. It's on Disney+. Plus. Um, Leif Shriver plays uh, Otto Frank. Um, I'm watching this show, and I'm thinking, you can actually see how German society came to a place of brokenness to the point where they could dehumanize an entire group of people. And honestly, I, I, maybe with just a touch of exaggeration, I actually think that we're creating those same conditions today. Mm. 
where dehumanization, it, it's using completely different means, right? We're using technology, you know, and, and misinformation and all of that. But I'm seeing that same kind of dehumanizing effect. And when I go back to the early Christians, um, they lived in a society that was drastically and intentionally not equal. Right? So Roman society was like a big pyramid. And at the top, you had the few. You had the Olympians. You had demigods. You had the emperor. You had senators, equestrians, people of the elite class. And then way at the bottom, you had this massive 99% that were commoners, slaves, criminals, immigrants, foreigners, the disabled. And Roman society reinforced what's called stratification, keeping people in these layers that you couldn't actually cross or couldn't cross very easily. And the idea of equality was actually really dangerous in Roman society. There's a famous letter from Pliny to one of his friends where he warns this military officer, don't, don't be chummy with your inferiors. And he's like, I know what you're doing. You're trying to get good favor with your subordinates, but you're blurring the lines of power. You need to make, and he has this famous line where he says, um, uh, the, the appearance of equality is one of the most unequal things in society. He's basically saying equality is too dangerous because not everybody deserves to be treated the same way. And it'll lead to anarchy. Mm. Imagine if you started treating slaves like they were on equal level with you. It's going to lead to anarchy. And then you have Jesus and you have the early Christians and they repeat these the same phrase. God shows no favoritism. In Old English, God is no respecters, respecter of persons. And I, I try to figure out, one thing I try to do in the book is not use Christianese so I can get you into this Roman world. So I translated that as uh, God treats all as equal. This is one of the most dangerous things you could do in society. It, it, just think of the anarchy if we did this on airplanes, right? No matter how much you spent, we're just going to do a lottery and then certain, you know, random people get in the first class. Think about how upset setting that would be to people, right? I'm not against that. I would love to get that once in a while. But um, think that that's the way Rome thought is we can't do that. You can't roll the dice. But Christians had this crazy idea because of Jesus that everybody has the exact same equal value. We call this social economics, right? So their theological social economics was radically subversive. So let me give you just a couple examples. James, book of James. If you want to upset your church, preachers, preach through the book of James. <laughs> you will get so many comments, uh, email comments, because James just tells it like it is. And he says, hey, you're saving the best seats for the rich people? No. Bring, bring the poor people up, give them the best seats, give them the best coffee, right? Roll out the red carpet. And the rich people, they'll get by. They're fine. This is not the way Roman society works. You can't do that. But the Christians were saying, no, we're doing it. Or Jesus's parable of the great banquet. Mm. He invites people to this great celebration, this great dinner party where you're supposed to show off how important you are. And people snub him. He invites these people, they snub him. And so instead of trying harder, he says, screw it. Let's take the food out to the streets. Let's give it to the least of these, the homeless, the people, children sitting around. Give them the lobster. Give them the creme brulee. Right? Give them all the best food. This is just something you don't do in Roman society. You just don't do that. Hmm. And that's what I mean by weird or strange is they snubbed kind of just the way things are in order to follow the radical value system they had. Last example, Paul's letter to Philemon. So Philemon is a Christian slave master and Onesimus is a Christian slave. And they had some, some uh, estrangement. And Onesimus was, was with Paul and Paul sends him home. And do I wish that Paul said, hey, free your slave? Yes, I wish that Paul said that. He doesn't say that. We can talk about that later. But what he does say to Philemon 
is um, welcome him back as more than a slave, as a beloved brother. So he's messing, he's disorienting, destabilizing this notion of the lines and differences between family and slaves. And secondly, he says, welcome him as you would welcome me. Now you got to remember, at this time in history, Paul is like royalty in churches. Like think about 1 Corinthians, right? I am a Paul and I'm a Paulist. Like Paul's a big deal, right? He has a following. He's got groupies. You know, when he shows up, right, you put out the good plates and good cups. And he's saying, treat this slave that you've had a beef with just like you treat me. And I think about the parable of the prodigal son where the father says, kill the fatted calf, get the robe, get the gold ring. So I think Paul is saying to Philemon, hey, what would you do to a bad slave? Beat them. Put a, put a runaway collar on them, which they would actually do sometimes. Uh, sell them to a worse, possibly a worse situation. Uh, um, send them off to a farm where they would never be seen again. And they would just work grueling days and nights. Uh, most likely it's beating. Uh, but what does Paul say? No, treat him like a VIP. Run the bath. Right? Buy the party supplies. Um, and Roman society would say, this is absolutely disastrous. Hmm. So before we jump in to apply that to today, um, I'll actually, the other half of that question was, what did the church not get right? And so this is where you and I can have some fun. Um, lawsuits. So ancient, they're today. So, you know, there's a passage in Corinthians mm -hmm. where Paul basically says, why are you suing people within the church? Can't you handle it yourself? Right. So paint us a picture, because I think that that kind of gets back to this question of hypocrisy. Yeah, why yeah. was that such a big deal then? And what was hypocrite? And then I think we can start jumping to making some kind of analysis to us today. Sure, sure. Yeah, you know, I, I actually, you know, when I was writing to, uh, Strange Religion, I I wondered, like, what's the most obvious pushback against what I'm saying? And the most obvious pushback is what's called Christian exceptionalism mm -hmm. or biblical exceptionalism, just kind of like American exceptionalism, this idea that we're the perfect religion with the perfect people, with the perfect history. And I do my best in this book to put our best foot forward, <laughs> right? I do think there's some amazing things that happened through Jesus and the apostles. But as I was talking to my publisher and my editor, I thought, I don't want to come across like Christians were perfect. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I actually have a chapter in here that's called the, Christ the first Christians weren't perfect. Uh, and I talk about a few of these things in there. I don't talk about lawsuits, but I say they used, they fought with each other, which is kind of what you're talking about. And sometimes really nasty stuff. I mean, the fact they're pitting Apollos and Paul, Peter against each other. Uh, you have Paul and Peter in Galatians, but you're talking about these lawsuits. I, I think honestly, uh, Peter and Amanda, I think what's happening is just immaturity, right? Mm -hmm. What does Paul say to them? He says, you're immature. What does he say to the Philippians? Anyone who's mature will think like me. Um, it's one thing to have the gospel, uh, even have the right confessions. It's another thing to just be a mature person, right? Mm -hmm. I cringe when I look at my 17-year-old self. Right. I had all the zeal in the world for Jesus, but I had very little maturity. And um, I wonder what I'll think about myself in 30 years. Right. When I look back. So here's you just have Christians who are dunking on each other. Right. Who are maybe using wealth to manipulate each other. Um, and, you know, it's like the old saying goes. Power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. And when you're an immature Christian with power, you can do a lot of damage, right? I think this is what's happening. I mean, I turn to 1 Corinthians 11, where um, you have a situation that's meant to be the Lord's Supper, where people are coming together, having a simple meal. They were turning it into a banquet where they could prove their importance over and against others. So they're inviting some people early to eat the best food, 
Some people late, they don't get any food. There's nothing left, right? There's this, it, they turn church into a game, right? A, com- a competition. Um, and Paul's saying, I love that Paul, Paul says, or he just says it bluntly. Don't you have houses where you can eat? This isn't about food. It's about fellowship. It's about equality. It's about sharing. It's about worshiping Jesus. And we're eating and drinking judgment. It's really about like, where's your heart? Where are you at? Mm-hmm. I think that's so. So, yeah, I think what we're seeing with and this reminds me of a quote that goes supposedly goes back to Gandhi. No one can find the actual attribution, but um, I'm going to attribute it to Gandhi. Since I'm Indian, I have the authority to do that, by the way. I don't know if you guys know that. But <laughs> he said, um, I like your Christ. I don't like your Christians. I wish your Christians were more like your Christ. And that's kind of the story of Christianity, isn't it? Mm-hmm. That uh, we have a perfect Savior. We are imperfect. But as Paul says in Philippians, we strain for what's ahead and forget what's behind. Mm-hmm. So let, let's come to today because I, I think all of that background is super important. And that's why I think whether you're deconstructing, whether you're a skeptic, a book like this is powerful because before you completely deconstruct, it's important to see what the first century church was like, the good, the bad, and the ugly. So as you kind of think about the year of our Lord, 2024, America, we have an election coming up. Um, There's a lot of worry and anxiety. Um, There's also, you know, there's fundamentalism. So there's fundamental... um, conservatism, fundamental progressivism, and somehow lost in all of this is, you know, the the message of the gospel and how it impacts us mm-hmm. and how it brings together a group of difference. And so I guess as you look at the issue of hypocrisy and the credibility of Christianity, what's all at stake this year that you're most concerned about? Yeah, that's a lot, but it's really important because I do think Christianity has a reputation issue in America that we need to deal with. Um, And I think we need to have enough um, concern about it that we're willing to come together with others and say, what are we going to do about it? So I'll mention a couple things. One thing is the importance of transparency and authenticity. Um. I think uh, at the heart of hypocrisy is putting on a face, right? Mm-hmm. So the biblical language of it, it comes from Greek and it means to put on a mask, right? To, to play act. And so we got to take the masks off. Um, that requires sacrifice. We have to sacrifice um, the kind of sheltering that might feel like protects our reputation, Right. Things like NDAs. My, my colleague, Scott McKnight, has been a big critic of churches that require victims to sign NDAs because NDAs put a cover on what should be exposed. Right. We got to let the, we got to let the light touch things. Hmm. Um, and so I think transparency. Right. Uh, you know, it's really interesting when you think about like companies like businesses and think about like you know, I'm 40 something. Think about when I was a little kid, like we didn't know the ethics of the company. Nobody knew those things. We didn't know who the CEO was. And now with social media, with the internet, we know everything about everything. Right. So people are going to find out anyway. So just, just let the cover off, Sh- show what's there. Right. So we, we have to get over. I think we have to get over the idea that I'm protecting Christianity, that my hiding things is somehow protecting Christianity. Let Jesus do that. Let the spirit do that. And if I have to fall on a sword, okay. You know, I did a study of Philippians a few years ago. One thing that really amazed me about Paul is he's sitting in prison, middle of the letter, he starts talking up Epaphroditus and Timothy. And scholars for ages have thought that should be at the end of the letter. But the reason it's the middle letter, and I, I learned this from a scholar named Frank, Fred Craddock, the reason it's the middle letter is. Paul is preparing this church for the possibility of Paul's demise. He's saying there are great leaders waiting in the wings. You have great leaders like Epaphroditus. I have another apostolic uh, partner like Timothy, and they're waiting. And if I go, they're coming. They're coming in. They're getting in the game. They're coming off the bench. 
And we need that mentality. Like my church, Christianity Today, doesn't depend on me. It's not about whether I can protect my reputation. You look at all these pastors that are embroiled in scandal. Mm -hmm. And what they're doing is they're clawing and scraping to retain their reputation to protect the church and to protect themselves. And we need to let go of that. Mm-hmm. We need to say, I need to step aside. I'm, I'm, you know, and, and the church is going to be fine or God's going to make a way for, for it to be something else. Mm-hmm. This particular church. Second thing I would say, and this is kind of where my heart's at. And I talk about this in the book a little bit. Um, I, I recently watched a, a YouTube video about an ex neo-Nazi a modern ex neo-Nazi. And one thing that really fascinated about, about that was just how this neo-Nazi movement drew people together on the premise of hate. He said, our whole ideology is hate. We hate everybody. Doesn't matter if you're Jewish, Muslim, whatever, we hate everybody An ideology of hate. And at the same time, I was listening to uh, a media specialist that worked for a Christian organization and she's not a Christian. And she was saying how just third-party observation, the way that Christians interact on the internet, the main theme she sees is hate. Just the amount of trolling, spite, grenade throwing, right? Mockery, slander, all of that. And it, it, it was just so easy to make a connection. What are we doing hating people? <laughs> You know, know, I'm, I, sometimes when I'm, you know, lying in bed at night dreaming, I dream about what I want Portlanders. If they only know one thing, what I want them to know about Christians. Like I want them to know about Jesus, but it's going to take some time to read the gospels. What I want them to know about Christians, like my wife, like me, like the people I go to church with. And the one word that keeps coming back to mind is compassion. They're people of compassion. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to agree with somebody to have compassion. You could be completely on opposite ends of the political ideology, Coke or Pepsi spectrum, and have compassion, right? What compassion is at heart is to say this other person, whether they are friend, stranger, or enemy, is another me. That's all. That, that's all it is, right? It's another. They're another me. So, if I would take a bullet for me, I would take a bullet for them. And I'm, I hate to go political here, but I'm going to do it. I'm so sorry. So if you have to edit this out, I probably won't make it a fourth time. I'm just kidding. I will. <laughs> but um, I was listening to uh, former presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy, who's Indian. Uh, who has Christian values, even though he's Hindu. I don't know how to explain that one to you. Um, and he said in one of his speeches, when I'm president, if America, get, if America gets hit, we'll hit back 10 times harder. And if I could have a phone call with Vivek Ramaswamy, I would tell him, he's actually younger than me, by the way. <laughs> I would tell him, neither is that an Indian ideal, nor is that a Judeo-Christian ideal. The Judeo-Christian ideal is, if you hit me, I will care for you. I will take care of you. That's that's it. If I could wave a magic wand and change how American Christianity operates, I would say we, we need to be people of compassion. Yes, truth. Yes, gospel. Yes, Jesus. All of that. But in terms of kind of who we are at our core, and how we actually see other people, right? Compassion, generosity, love, giving, service. Uh, I was just recently at church, and we had a huge ice storm here. Lots of bad stuff going on here with weather. One of the great things about Oregon is the tall trees, but once you get ice, the trees start coming down. So trees were falling everywhere. We lost power for a while. And at church on Sunday, finally made it back to church. And it was wonderful at my church. The men's ministry volunteered to come to anyone's house with chainsaws and cut up their fallen trees to help that, to help them hold them away. Mm. When the city is completely maxed down on resources, right? The church is thinking, how can we help people get back on track? How can people get their power back? 
I just think that's like that. That's it, right? That's the weird. When people ask, "Why are you doing this?" Because we're weird. Because of Jesus. What do you think keeps people from being compassionate? So if that's like the in the framework of hypocrisy, like what keeps people from being so compassionate towards people, especially, I love that you mentioned our enemies or someone we disagree mm. with. Um, that's as you're talking, I'm like, that's the only, that's the biggest question I've got. Yeah. It's important. Um, I mean, it, there's so many, um, interconnected pieces to that, but I think a big part of it is how our, how our, like, I would say theological, social economics, how our understanding of our interrelationships with others is shaped by the way our heroes talk about people. So I'm a hugely impressionable person, right? And so I have certain heroes, right? My mentors, certain pastors, certain theologians um, who just leave a big impact on me, mm. you know, like a Eugene Peterson, mm. Um that sort of thing. And so I'm going to see the world through their eyes. I'm going to see other people through their eyes. And if those people that shape us, those leaders are broadcasting messages of fear that person or that person's a criminal or that person is just like Hitler or that person wants your money, right? If, if we're just bombarded with those messages it leaves a mark. I think also um, part of that is I get this from Shane Claiborne when he was really involved with um, ministry to the poor, which he still is, but this was back in the uh, 2010s. Um, and he has this famous quote that's always stuck with me. Uh, the problem with American Christians is not that they don't care about the poor. It's that they don't know the poor. Mm. And that really hit home because you could say your prayers, but humanizing comes with knowing somebody. So I used to work at Seattle Pacific University. They had a John Perkins Center for Reconciliation. John Perkins being a well-known Christian uh, civil rights uh, and community development leader. And um, in my classes, when I taught undergraduates, I'd always have a representative from the Perkins Center come speak to my students mostly white students, mostly wealthier white students about racial reconciliation and racial justice. And so this guy, Tally, I'd always ask him the same question every semester to, to talk to my students. What's one thing that you can do to be part of the solution in the area of racial reconciliation? And he'd always say the same thing. He'd say, become friends with someone that's not like you. Not listen to their podcast, not read their book, not buy their poster, but actually become friends with them. Um, and that's the hardest thing in the world to do because it can feel like we're betraying our um, values or ideology or what I call contamination. You know, we're, I'm, oh, if I hang out with that Republican or that Democrat, I'm going to be contaminated. You know, don't sell yourself short. Like you're a smart person. Like you'll be okay. Like sit down, have a conversation, get to know them, mm -hmm. get to know the, <laughs> okay. So I don't know if you guys seen this, but there's this really funny AI picture where someone asked AI to create pictures of Biden and Trump having a good time together. Have you seen these? Oh yeah. It's, it's hysterical. They're like baking a cake together or whatever, having coffee. And it's just like, wow. Like what if that happened? Like in real life, what if they actually sat down, talked with each other, figured out what they had in common, talked about their grandkids or great grandkids, talked about their favorite athletes, whatever, you know, and it, it has to be something within us that steps over a line to say, I'm sorry, or I've not been good at this. I want to get better. Can we have a conversation? Mm -hmm. Someone's got to make the first step. I had this situation a number of years ago where I felt like somebody that I didn't I didn't know, we just acquaintances, I felt like that person hurt me really bad. And everything within me wanted to hurt them back. 
I just, it was just within, it was just in my, the darkest part of my hearts. It would keep me up at night. I just, I had so much animosity there. <laughs> and I consulted with a couple of Christian mentors. And um, I said, should I do this? And think about like retaliation or legal things, uh, all this stuff. And one of my mentors, she's Catholic. She said, you know, well, my Catholic faith, faith teaches me charity. And I know it's a hard message, but that's one that you're going to have to walk in. And oh my gosh. And so I reached out to the person, even though I felt offended, I reached out saying, let's talk. I want to hear you out. I want to know what's going on. Let's have a conversation. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you what, guys, that was probably one of the hardest things I've ever done in my whole life. Just send that email. Because everything was in me was like unfair, 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 unfair. We well, you know it's unfair what Jesus had to go through. So get over it. You know, <laughs> that's this little voice in my head that said, get over it. Right. If Jesus could do it, you can do it too. That's why he did it. He did it to empower you. Mm. So, man, I want to say it's hard to practice, but I think the truth is Christians have to be the first one to cross the line to make friends with their enemies mm. or to at least show compassion. There's a theologian named Miroslav Volf. He talks about the challenge of reconciliation and he says, you know, a victim, a victim should never be in a place of making the first move of embrace because that can be dangerous. But what they are called to is the will to embrace. Hmm. And I love that because you're saying the final goal is friendship, even if it doesn't happen. That's the final goal is friendship or at least peace. Right. Mm -hmm. And what I see from Jesus, what I see from the early Christians is they didn't wait for someone else to lead the group. They didn't wait for, oh, we'll wait for the people of that religion or that tribe or that city they said, we're, we're going to be first to do this. We're going to be the first to do this. That's what it means to be weird. Many times you're going to be the first person to do it. You're going to be the first person to give to that initiative because we have an inexhaustible resource, treasury of power that we believe that other people don't have, which makes us responsible for being the first people to do that. This has gone by so fast. So just probably a couple of questions. But um, the one thing I want to ask you is there there's probably a lot of listeners that are deconstructing. They're doubting. You know, they'll say, I I'm a Christian, but I don't want to go to church. And hypocrisy is the thing that's keeping them from, you know, maybe engaging in this vision that you're talking about. What what is your encouragement to them as they process through their own hurt, pain, um, even th some of the stuff that you've brought up? How would you speak to them today? First thing I'd say is we need to challenge and call out misbehavior. So I, I would love to just be able to say to them, they're Christians that do bad things and that's not right. And just acknowledge that. Mm. I want to be able to acknowledge that. And that there's abuse of power, there's spiritual abuse, there's incompetency. I think a lot of our problems are incompetency, but that's not all of it. And so just first saying that I think is really powerful just to say your experience shouldn't have happened. The way that person treated you shouldn't have happened. Um, and that you deserve dignity, you deserve the truth, uh, all those things. Second thing I'd say is one of my favorite things about being a seminary professor is we help give students the long view because um, Christianity has been around for 2,000 years. And um, I think we're in some pretty dark times now with we're in a reckoning, which I think is good because these things are being exposed, but it can make it seem like there's nothing good about Christianity. So I'd say study, study Christianity, study all of Christianity, because there are amazing things going on around the world. There are amazing things going on in American history. There are amazing things going on in Middle Eastern history uh, with Christianity, uh, India and other places. And so take the long view and, and look at some of the most powerful things. There's a great book by Tom Holland, the writer, 
not the actor, uh, <laughs> called Dominion, which is about how the Western society, the best of Western society was shaped by early Christianity. Um, so that's number two. So first thing is, um, this, I get this from Cornell West. He has a great quote, let suffering speak, mm -hmm. let suffering speak. And I, lo I love that. Like, that's, we, let's not shut people up. Like, I feel like pastors sometimes shut people up and like, we, oh, we don't want bad PR. No, let suffering speak. Let people speak. Um, one of the churches I go to sometimes here in Portland has a lament board, a couple of them around the room. People can just post things and you can post whatever you want <laughs> and it'll stay up there. It's not censored. And I just love that. What are you doing? You're le letting suffering speak. Hmm. You can complain about the sermon. You complain about Christians, anything. That's just the most Christian thing you could do is put up complaints <laughs> as prayers on the wall of your church. Like, I love that. Number one, let suffering speak. Number two, take the long view. Number three, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of my favorite theologians, when he was probably 13, I think, he went into his kitchen and his parents were there and they were nominal Christian, kind of anti-Christian, and his brothers and sister, I think. And he said, 13-year-old, I want to be a pastor. And his family was all like, what? Why? Like, they, 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 there was this very negative view of that. And they said, don't you know the church is corrupt? And he said, that I will reform the church. <laughs> and um, so I would say number three, like, be a part of the solution. Like, I have students who have been hurt by the church, and they've created ministries, new ministries, to talk about the brokenness, to talk about the difficult things. Um, and then number four, uh, go back to the basic bl building blocks of faith, prayer, scripture reading, and gathering, gathering together with the believers. If you need to get away from traditional church, I think it's okay. If you just want to gather with a few believers, people you trust, people that are safe for you and just pray, simple prayers, pray the liturgy of the church, read the gospels, read the Psalms, um, and just take it slow, right? The worst thing you can do is to freeze out Jesus and not talk to him. He can handle your anger. He can handle your lament. He can handle your complaints, your doubts. And then he says, like he said to Thomas, come take a look, right? Mm -hmm. He didn't say, how dare you? He says, come take a look. So I'd say, stay connected to Jesus and and lean on believers you trust who have at the moment a stronger faith than you. Hmm. Nije, this is great. Uh, if I had a physical copy of your book, I'd hold it up, but I'm gonna hold up my laptop because I get the PDF. Oh, there it is, here it is. <laughs> there you go, strange religion. Um, what, you know, I love how God works. It's really timely. So mm -hmm. um, just, uh, we're going to do, we do a new thing called final remarks. So it's mm -hmm. basically the same thing as we always do. Amanda and I are going to go and you'll mostly have to just clean up what I said when both of us are done. You get the final word. Sure. Does that sound good? <laughs> I'll do it. <laughs> I'll take it. So uh, I'll go first. Go ahead. Okay. I had mixed feelings about being a part of this conversation because I know and can recognize that. I myself can be and am hypocritical. Like I think about things I've done in the past that I wish I hadn't at all. Mm. And when I look at the question of why are Christians so hypocritical, I think immediately because we're imperfect, we're not, we're not like Christ as much as we should be, but yet we're striving to be. Um, it just pains me to think that our hypocrisy has hurt so many people to the point where they don't follow Christ and have no desire to at all, um, which I think is why it drew me in to have the conversation and be a part of it, um, because my hope would be that through this question and us admitting that we're not perfect, people would come to know him and there would be overall in the body of Christ a seeking to heal and make things better. So I appreciate the, the last snippet, all of it, especially the last bit that you said about how to talk to the person who is struggling, seeking, or just mm. really deconstructing their faith. Because honestly, I think that's very necessary with how 
myself, the church has been in the past, and I hope for better. Thank you for that authenticity. Mm-hmm. I um, What I loved about this conversation is we tend to look at, and this goes to your point, Nijay, we tend to look at the small season that we're in, you know, we're in the 2020s. And I think the way that you're approaching this and kind of even going back to the Bible is it kind of brings us to a different reality of the long game of, you know, the Christians were looked upon, um, they were looked upon in a downward way because they treated people as equal because Mm -hmm they brought together their money and their uh, everything together and they, they just shared it. And there's this vision of the gospel of, um, and I've heard pastors say this, if I was in a desert Island and just given a Bible, no other commentaries still buy commentaries, but like, (laughs) what, what would I do? And like, when you start reading scripture and you're like, you know, we, we give our food, we pray for each other. We, we see each other's differences, but we also see each other as equal. We treat people with kindness and respect. You know, we we actually go to the people that disagree with us the most. And I think that in seeing that vision, it helps us have a better understanding of not just what's wrong, but maybe the hope for what Jesus is painting and doing in America today. So I'm really glad the way that you're framing this conversation, but also just bringing us back to the roots of Christianity. Cause I think every once in a while, um, probably more often than not, we need to be brought back to the reality of the early church, not just what they did well, but also what they did wrong. And where does that relate to us today? How are we living out our faith in ways that are winsome, inspiring and influential to a dark and broken world around us? Yeah, great, great reflections. One one question I keep coming back to over the last few years in relationship to this book is, is Christianity worth saving? Right? I mean, we, you know, we, we, when something is broken, right, sometimes you get rid of it. And we're at a place, I think, in society where we have to ask the question, is it worth saving? Right? And I think, my answer is yes, it is. But, you know, I have a pastor from my, my high school days. He used to say, sometimes things have to get worse before they can get better. Mm-hmm. And the worst, the, the things that are harder right now is digging out all of the infectious tissue, right? And that's going to mean honesty. That's going to mean humility. Um, and it, ultimately, it comes down to culture, Right. When I was talking about Christianity, whether whether it's at the core or whether it's only a wrapping paper, it comes down to culture. And, and this, Peter, you sparked this thought for me. Um, do the degree to which we're going to be like Jesus corresponds to how well we know Jesus. Mm. Right. So when someone sees the life of a Christian. And then they read the Gospels. Is there a correspondence between them? Mm. Or is it like, wait, why does that person act that way? And then Jesus talks about this. You know, we want there to be correspondence. So part of my job is let's get people back in the Bible. So those people, Mm. last remarks, that are feeling discouraged. um, Open up the Gospels. Okay, I'm going to sell you on the Bible Project right now. They're doing um, several months on the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapters five through seven. That's a great place to, as a haven for those who are struggling with Christianity, um, spend some time with the Bible project, spend some time in Jesus's most famous teachings. I call them his greatest hits (laughs) and how much those teachings have actually transformed Western society in terms of what our values should be and what our values have sometimes been. And I, I hope you will find encouragement in that. Nijay, where's the best place people can find you to follow you? Oh, physically, it's a coffee shop here in Portland. But <laughs> uh, digitally, uh, you can find me. I have a podcast. Uh, okay, Peter, you're not the only one with a podcast. A <laughs> uh, podcast called Slow Theology uh, with my friend, Dr. AJ Swoboda. And we actually talk about deconstruction reconstruction, healthy faith formation, 
what to do with disenchantment with the church, spiritual abuse, all of that. We're not experts in all that, but we care a lot. And we just have really honest, casual conversations about what I call ugly Christianity. Um, and then also, if you're interested in seminary, check out Northern Seminary. Uh, come do a degree with me and my wonderful colleagues. Um, and I'm on social media, probably less and less, but I am there somewhere listening if people want to see what I'm up to. Lots of great books out there. For 15 Words of the New Testament, Tell Her Story. We didn't get a chance even to talk about those. So I would just encourage you that uh, Nijay is going to engage your thinking um, wherever you are in your faith journey. You can always find us at whygetwhypodcast.com. Um, make sure you pick up, uh, I was about to say Stranger Things, but Strange <laughs> strange Religion. But uh, Stranger Things. So there, <laughs> read stranger, the book and then you can watch the show. You know, or read a chapter, then watch the show. Anyways, yes. we'll go from there. But Nijay, thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure. Thanks for the conversation. Thanks.